0: This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. And what a treat it is this evening to have Marlon James with us. In just a decade and a half since the publication of his first book, John Crow's Devil, Marlon has emerged as a major contemporary writer, known for his raw, lyrical, and powerful prose, which can be both wonderfully eloquent and disturbingly provocative. The story of Marlon's remarkable life has been told in in various profile pieces, how he grew up in Jamaica, often bullied by classmates for his nerdiness, how he took comfort in reading and art, how he had given up on having a writing career after receiving more than 70 rejections from US publishers for his first novel, but then happened to attend a, a creative writing workshop led by American novelist Kaylee Jones, who recognized the, the promise of John Crow's Devil, a religious drama between two preachers set in a small Jamaican village. Marlon moved to the United States to get a master's degree in creative writing, then took a position at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he's taught creative writing and literature for the past dozen years. In America, Marlin has found the space and opportunity to further excel at his craft. His second novel, The Book of Night Women, a sweeping harsh slave narrative set on a Jamaican plantation in the early 19th century, appeared 10 years ago. And four years ago, he won the Man Booker Prize for his third novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, an ambitious complex, violent, polyphonic work that reflects the turbulence of Jamaican politics and culture in the 1970s and 80s. His new book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, has received enthusiastic reviews, and I don't often get to announce news from this podium, but just in the last half hour, we learned that his option, optioned the book for a movie. A gripping, a gripping, dizzying, action-past epic narrative about a long, perilous journey through a mythical land, the work shows off Marlon's lush prose and his talent for sheer inventiveness. Drawing on African myth and folklore and filled with a spectacular array of memorable characters, the novel is a vibrant and haunting fantasy that defies easy categorization as it explores fundamental issues of personal identity, the pursuit of truth and the limits of power. Marlon is calling this book the first installment of a dark star trilogy, and I'm very eager to hear him discuss it, so ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Marlon James.
1: Wow, I remember the days of three people coming to my readings. I was telling somebody that that, um, I'm not faced by anything. I've had the reading where one person showed up. Problem is that the the one person was my friend trying to set me up on a girlfriend. I'm like, somebody didn't read the memo. (laughs) It was a very awkward night in Seattle. (laughs) Guys, thanks for thanks for coming out. I'm a teacher, so I have to stop myself from saying thanks for coming out on a school night. <laughs> because I would have definitely given my students shit for going somewhere on a school night. Um what can I say about this this um this novel? I, I'm gonna read a little bit and talk a little bit about it. Um there's a proverb at the beginning that says, Be ojuri enu apamo. Not everything that eye sees should be spoken by the mouth. To for instance, that's exactly what the novel is. Um, the reason why is one of the things, one of the things that's different, I think, which is a lot of African folk stories and a lot of, uh, European and other traditional folk stories is that in a lot of those stories, the European, the just the very act of telling a story sort of gives a guarantee of authority. It's one of the reasons I think we have um, huge issues when it turns out the person's lying to us. Whereas in a lot of African folktales, the trickster is telling the story. Uh, whether it's about Anansi or Anansi's telling it, you already know that it's, you can't completely trust this person even as you're being swayed by the narrative. And um, in, this, in, the, in this novel and in this, in this trilogy, It's not a part one, part two, part three. Part two will not pick up where part one left off. It's actually three different witnesses telling the same story. So I already warned people, I realize you're making some emotional attachments to characters in this book. You might regret that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm going to read a little bit and and talk a little bit, and I'm going to go all over the place. Um, So my sister is here, and my congresswoman is here, so I can't read the nasty parts. <laughs> All right, maybe a slightly filthy part. Um, but I'm going to sort of jump around so that you give give a sense of, of the book. Um, one of the characters in this book, her name is Sogalan, and she's, a, she's, among other things, a 315-year-old witch. And... <coughs> In this section, it's way in the middle of the book, and it's not in part of the sort of the continuity of the narrative. Because one of the things that happens in this novel is all the characters, in the midst of stories, keep telling stories. So that's something also: stories loop on stories loop on stories. That sometimes the reader ends up adrift. I had to tell a critic that was deliberate. <laughs> I kind of want you lost at sea. Don't worry; the current will take you back home. But I do want you kind of sort of lost in story. So in this story, it's a very short story about how a fortress of imprisoned women managed to work out conjugal visits. And the person telling this is Sagalan. Is, is Let us make this quick. The water goddess see all and know all I am a priestess serving in a temple in Wakadishu when I go down the steps that lead to the river and up jump Bunshi. Bunshi's a water spirit. No fear come from me, though I see she have a fish tail-like, black-like pitch. She send me to Mantha with nothing but my leather dress, one sandal, and a mark from the house of Wakadishu. The princess lets solo take to her room and play the Korah at sunset and talk to no one. In the divine sisterhood, no one have power or class or rank, so her royal blood don't mean nothing, but her playing Korah actually means something. But all the sisters see her need to be alone. Word was that she walked the lands at night on the moonlight to whisper to the goddess of justice and girl children how much she hated her. After a year, as I walked to the sacred hall to pour libations, she pointed at me and said, what is your use? To bring it into your royal purpose, princess. Nothing about my purpose is royal, and I am no princess, she say. Two moons, and she moved me to her side. Woman as equal, but knowing she is royal. Two moons after that, I telling her that the water goddess have greater purpose for her. Three moons more, and she believe me, after summoned due to lift me off the ground and above her head. No, not believe me. She believed that something more bitter her life than a childless widow saying prayers to a goddess she hates. No, not belief, for she said belief will get people around her killed. I said to her, no, my mistress, only belief in love do that. Accept it, return it, cherish it, but never believe love can do anything other than love. The year didn't finish before Bunshi appeared to her on the last hot night of the year when nearly all the women, 129, went to bathe in the waterfall with nymphs to tell her the truth about her line and why she will always be the one to restore it. We will send a man. It has all been arranged, Bunshi said. Look at my life. All of it around a hole, owned, ordered, and arranged by men. Now I must take that from womankind too. You know nothing of sisterhood. You're just a pale echo of men. The true king will be a bastard. Did the water sprite also fall on her head at birth? No, you're most excellent. We have found a prince in Calendar. Another one? There seem to be everywhere like headless these kingdomless princes of Calendar. A marriage to a prince make your child legitimate. And when the true land of kings return, he can claim before all lords. Fuck all lords. All these kings also come from the womb of woman. What is to stop this man-child from doing just as all other man done? Kill all men. Then rule them, princess. Rule them through him and leave this place. What if I like this place? In Fasisi even the winds conspire against you. If it is your wish to stay, then stay, mistress. But as long as your brother is king, plagues above the earth and below will visit even this place. No plague has visited so far. When is this pestilence taking place? Why not now? Maybe the gods give you time to prevent it, your excellence. Your tongue is too smooth. I do not fully trust it. Let me see this man at least. He will come to you disguised as a eunuch. "'If he pleases you, then we will find an elder "'who cares for our cause.' "'An elder? "'So we're doomed to be betrayed then,' she say. "'No, mistress,' I say. "'I bring the prince from Kalendar. "'No man put down foot in Mantha for one hundred years, "'but many eunuchs. "'None of the women would ask the eunuch to lift his robes, "'for the scars show horrendous knifecraft. "'But at the great entrance stand the big guard.' daughter from a line of the tallest woman in Fasisi, who grabbed the crotch and squeeze. Before I tell this prince, this is what you do. Before that, I tell this prince, this is what you do. Forget your great discomfort and do not betray your unease or they will kill you at the gate and not care that I kill a prince. Take your balls and feel for each, then push them up in the sack into your bush. Take your kong kong and pull it hard between your legs until it touch near your bottom hole. The guard will feel your ball skin hanging on both sides of the Kong and think you're a woman. She will not even look at your face. The prince make it all the way to Lizzie Chamber before he remove veil and robe. Tall, dark, thick in hair, brown in eyes, thick and dark in lips, patterned scars above the brows and down both arms, and many years younger in age. All he you know was that this is the crown princess and he will see title. Hm. He'll do. Let's just what I'll say. You didn't see, you didn't see, you didn't figure it was going to go that way, did you? Yeah. <laughs> um, so before this, you know, kings and queens enter the story, the story begins in prison. And the person telling the story is a character named Tracker, who has no other name because he's forgotten it. And Tracker is, is giving testimony about how a mission that they were on. A slave trader um, hires these mercenaries to find a child who's been missing for three years. And, spoiler alert, the kid's dead. In case it didn't know, sorry. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. It's, it's, it's the first line in the book. <laughs> um, so, the, 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 the entire novel is a sort of a wide on it. Um, yeah, you know. and I'm so I'm going to read actually the beginning um, and how how he approaches being being interrogated. There's another proverb um, in it in the book. It's it, it's a Hausa proverb that says says Gabakura bayasiaki," which is "Forward is a hyena, backward is a fox." The child is dead. There's nothing left to know. I hear there's a queen in the south who kills a man who brings her bad news. So when I give word of the boy's death, do I write my own death with it? Truth eats lies just as a crocodile eats the moon. And yet my witness is the same today as it will be tomorrow. No, I did not kill him. Though I may have wanted him dead. Crave for it the way a glutton craves goat flesh. Oh, to draw blood and fire through his black heart and watch it explode black blood and to watch his eyes for when they stop blinking, when they look but stop seeing and to listen for his voice croaking and to hear his chest heave in a death rattle saying, look, my wretched spirit leaves this most wretched of bodies and to smile at such a thing and dance at such loss. Yes, I glut at the conceit of it, but no, I did not kill him. Bio jure enu epamu. Not everything the eye sees should be spoken by the mouth. This cell is larger than the one before. I smell the dried blood of executed men. I hear their ghosts still screaming. Your bread carries weevils, and your water carries the piss of, ten, of the ten and two guards and the goat they fuck for sport. Shall I give you a story? I am just a man who some have called a wolf. The child is dead. I know the old woman brings you different news. Call him murderer, she says, even though my only sorrow is that I did not kill her. The red-headed one said that the child's head was infested with devils. If you believe in devils, I believe in bad blood. You look like a man who has never shed blood, and yet blood sticks between your fingers. A boy you circumcise, a girl too small for your big. Look how that story thrills you. Look at you. I will give you a story. It begins with a leopard and a witch, grand inquisitor, fetish priest. No, you will not call for guards. My mouth might say too much before they club it shut. Regard yourself. A man with 200 cows who delights in a patch of boy skin and the cool of a girl who should be no man's woman. Because that is what you seek, is it Not. A dark little thing that cannot be found in 30 sacks of gold, or 200 cows, or 200 wives. Something that you have lost. No, it was taken from you. That light. You see it, and you want it. Not light from the sun, or from the thunder god in the night sky, but light with no blemish. Light in a boy who has no knowledge of woman, a girl you bought for marriage, not because you need a wife, for you have 200 cows, but a wife you can tear open because you search for it in holes, black holes, wet holes, underground holes for the light that vampires look for, and you will have it. You will dress it up in ceremony, circumcision for the boy, consummation for the girl, and when they shed blood and spit and sperm and piss, you leave it all on your skin to go to the Iroka tree and use any hole you find the child is dead, and so is everyone. I walked for days through swarms of flies in the blood swamp and skin-slicing rocks in salt plains through day and night. I walked as far south as Omarora and did not care. Men detained me as a beggar, took me for a thief, tortured me as a traitor, and when news of the dead child reached your kingdom, arrested me as a murderer. Did you know there were five men in my cell? Four nights ago, the scarf around my net belongs to the only man who left on two feet. He might even see from his right eye again one day. The other four make record as I have said it. Old men say night is a fool. It will not judge, but whatever comes, it will not warn. The first came from my bed. I woke up to my own death rattle, and it was a man crushing my throat. Shorter than an ogre, but taller than a horse. Smelled like he butchered a goat. Grabbed me by the neck and hoisted me in the air while the other men kept quiet. I tried to pull his fingers, but a devil was in his grip. Kicking his chest was kicking stone. He held me up as if admiring a precious jewel. I knead him in the jaw so hard his tongue sliced, his teeth sliced his tongue. He dropped me and I charged for his balls like a bull. He fell. I grabbed his knife, razor-sharp, and cut his throat. The second grabbed for my arms, but I was naked and slippery. The knife, my knife, I ran between his ribs and heard his heart pop. The third man danced with his feet and fists like a nightfly, whistling like a mosquito, make a fist I did, then stuck two fingers out like rabbit ears. Jabbed his left eye in the quick and pulled the whole thing out. He screamed. Watched him ball on the floor, searching for his eye. I forgot the other two men, the fat one behind me. He swung, I ducked, he tripped, he fell, I jumped, I grabbed the rock that was my pillow and bashed his head until his face smelled fleshy. The last man was a boy. He cried. He was too shaken to beg for his life. I told him to be a man in his next life, for he's less than a worm in this one, and flung the knife right into his neck. His blood hit the floor before his knees. I let the half-blind man live because we need stories in order to live, don't we, priest? Inquisitor, I don't know what to call you. But these are not your men. Good. Then you have no death song to sing to their widows. You have come for story, and I am moved to talk. So the gods have smiled on both of us. There was a merchant in the purple city who said he lost his wife. He went missing with five gold rings, 10 pairs of earrings, 20 and two bracelets, and 10 and nine anklets. It is said you have a nose for finding what would rather stay lost, he said. I was near 20 years and long banished from my father's house. The man thought I was some kind of hound, but I said, yes, it has been said I have a nose. He threw me his wife's undergarment. Her trail was so faint it was almost dead. Maybe she knew that one day men would come hunting, for she had a hut in three villages, and no one could tell which one she lived in. In each house was a girl who looked exactly like her and even answered to her name. The girl in the third house invited me in and pointed to a stool for me to sit. She asked if I was thirsty and reached for a jug of masuka beer before I said yes. Let me remind you that my eyes are ordinary, but it has been said that I have a nose." So when she brought the over the mug of beer, I already smelled the poison she put in it, a wife's poison called cobra spit that loses taste once you mix it in water. She gave me the mug and I took it, grabbed her hand and bent it behind her back. I put the mug to her lips and forced it between her teeth. Her tears ran down and I took away the mug. She took me to her mistress, who lived in a hut by the river. My husband beat me so hard that my child fell out, the mistress said. I have five gold rings, ten and two pairs of earrings, twenty and two bracelets, and ten and nine anklets, which I will give you. I took four anklets, and I took her back to her husband because I wanted his money more than her jewelry. Then I told her, have the woman in the third hut make him Masuku bear. The second story. My father came home one night smelling of a fisherwoman. She was on him, and so was the wood of a bower board. And the blood of a man, not my father. He played, a, he played a game against a binga, a bower master, and lost. My father beat the man until he stopped moving and left the bar. But no stink of sweat was on him, and not much dust, not even bear. He had not been in a bar, but in the den of an opium monk. So father came into the house and shouted me, to me from the grain shed I was living in Come, my son, sit and play bower with me, he said. The board was on the floor. "'Many balls missing, too many for a good game. "'But father was looking to win, not to play. "'But I was winning. "'You took the game to Mtaji phase,' he said. "'No, we're just beginning. "'How dare you speak to me with disrespect? "'Call me father when you talk to me,' he said. "'I said nothing and blocked him on the board. "'He had no seeds left in his inner row and could not move. "'You have cheated,' he said. "'There are more than thirty and two seeds on your board.' I said, either you're blind from wine or you cannot count. You sowed seeds, I captured them, I win. He punched me in the mouth before I could say another word. I fell off the stool and he grabbed the bower board to hit me the way he hit the binga. But my father was drunk and slow, and I have been watching the Angola masters practice their fight craft. He swung the board and seeds went scattering in the sky. I flipped backwards three times like I saw them do and crouched down like a waiting cheetah. He looked around me as if he had vanished. "'Come out, you coward, coward like your mother,' he said. "'This is why it brings me joy to disgrace her. First, I will beat you, then I'll beat her for raising you, "'then I'll leave a mark so that both of you remember "'that she raised a boy to be a mistress of men,' he said. "'Fury is a cloud that leaves my mind empty and my heart black. "'I jumped and kicked my legs out in the air. "'Now he hops like an animal,' he said. "'He charged at me, but I was no longer a boy.' I charged at him in a small house, dived to the ground with my hands, turned my hands to feet, flipped up and spun my whole body like a wheel with my legs in the air, and I spun towards him and locked him with my two feet around his neck and brought him down hard. His head smacked the ground so loud that my mother outside heard the crack. She ran inside and screamed, Get away from him, child. You have ruined both of us. I looked at her and spat. Then I left. There are two endings to this story. In the first, my, fa- my legs locked around his neck and broke it, and when I brought him down to the ground, he died right there on the floor, and my mother gave me five curries and sorghum wrapped in palm leaf and sent me away. I told her that I would leave with nothing he owned, not even clothes. In the second ending, I do not break his neck, but he still lands on his head, which cracks and bleeds. He wakes up an I'm imbecile. My mother gives me five curries and a sorghum wrapped in banana leaf and says, leave this place. Your uncles are all worse than he. Um, I'm thinking about how this, this novel, this novel um, came, came to pass. Thank you. I've totally lost track of time. So, um, so this novel actually kind of began with a with a fight. I was a, it was a friendly fight, but it was a fight. It was 2010, and they had announced the cast for The Hobbit, and I was like, Jesus H. Christ, here we go again. You know, I'm going to talk about lack of representation. You're going to push back about how it's a European story and so on, and that's exactly what happened. I'm like, I cannot believe the cast of The Hobbit is so white, and um, and my friend was like, you know, it's it's The Hobbit is based on African mythology, not African, sorry, European mythology and Euro- and British culture and British history, and Law of the Rings is 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 it British and it's Celtic, and I said, Law of the Rings isn't real. <laughs> you know, you. You can do what you want with it. In fact, if we had opened up in the Shire and there was an Asian habit, nobody would have cared. And then I said, you know what, keep your damn habit. <laughs> Um, But that sent me on a mission, and I didn't know it was a mission, because here's the thing about the myths. Um, Margaret Atwood said human nature has not changed in a thousand years, and we know that because of the myths. And uh, I think people of, of European descent can take the myths for granted, I think. I don't think you realize how much of your culture sometimes has been shaped by your myths and legends. Um, for black people in the diaspora, unless we do some, we, we, we're, we're blessed with oral tradition or we do some of the work, for a lot of us, too many of us, ground zero is slavery. And that's not a ground zero. Um, somebody asked me, the, some of the research I have doing, how far back it went. I said 5,000 years, that's how far back I went. Um... How, the, the things I found doing research. And the thing is, the point I'm trying to make is I had to go search for it. I had to do the research um, to find so many of these things. Because I wanted to write a fantasy novel that is not like the European fantasy that I, am, I adore. There's, I love Lord of the Rings so much, I had to cut out all the Lord of the Rings lines that were in here. I had to spell check. <laughs> At one point, the per- somebody said they went too far and dug too deep. I'm like, oh my God, Helm's Deep. The only, other th- the only other person who has as much an influence on the lines of this in this book is PJ Harvey. There's a character in it who just says, it's hard walking in a dress, it's not easy. I'm like, shit. <laughs> That's an exact line from PJ Harvey's dress. Um, but the, the, doing the research, the novel almost started writing itself. And the things that I was, you know, I was discovering, um, Benin City, one of my, one of my cities in this book is based on Benin City. And Benin City has a lot of remarkable things, including streetlights. You know, a concept that would never have occurred to our European kingdom. Um, Jenny had plumbing. Um, that the reason why we don't know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Benin City is because Harry, Harry Rawson from the British Army burnt it down and these names are, are important to remember. So you all know my favorite scene in Black Panther, right? I'm gonna take this all off your hands, Not that I'm you know, endorsing breaking into the British Museum and taking artifacts. <laughs> Especially since Killmonger just bought the rights to my book. <laughs> Sir, so watching Black Panther every time he opened his mouth, I'm like, he's the villain, but where the lie, though? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the 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 things I was, you know, the things I was discovering, and that there was the wonder and and of, of at 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 uncovering so many things, and the shame that I had to uncover it at 46 years old, and um and and that. There is still so much work to be done in, in schools, in, 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 in how we teach these stories, so, so many books that need to be written. And, you know, and some of the books already written that need to be read. Um, Sophia Samatar has been doing fantastic work. Charles Saunders, Imara, Kaya Shanti-Wilson, um, Nenede Okorafor, who don't, certainly don't need my, my help. Um, Flora Noapa. Um, there's so much work that has already been done in this that um, that there's work to be written, but there's also work to be discovered. Um, one of the coolest things I, you know I found it from the research, for example, is African vampires aren't scared of daylight. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you were counting on running out in daylight? No. <laughs> in um in a in a lot of African cultures, there is what we call noon of the dead, and uh, And just to give you an example, me saying Noon of the Dead already planted an image in your head. Noon of the Dead is midnight. That also planted an image in your head. Because we have a very European view of those things. We think the witching hour. We think when evil comes out, we think things done in secret. Noon of the dead is the coolest time of the year coolest time of the day because your really cool aunt who died way too soon is gonna come chill with you. And of course your cool aunt is always cooler than your parents. So you can't wait for the noon of the dead. You can't wait to be in conversation with the ancestors, with the spirits. It's just like, to use, that, to use Black Panther again, is that scene when T'Challa goes to his father and he comes down as a panther from the tree. That's the noon of the dead. Um, contrast that with 12 noon, or high noon, which is actually the scariest time of day. Because our monsters don't need the dark to come after your ass. <laughs> <laughs> They'll knock on your door in high noon. Say, "Yeah, show up. Go out. Go out. I dare you." Uh, uh, so that that was just so much, so much fun to write. Um, the other thing, and I'm, I'm going to open it up to some questions and maybe close it on another reading. One of the things that also was really, really refreshing to to find. Um, I've already been asked questions about the the huge sort of queer atmosphere in the book and the queer energy, and I think people thought I was trying to score intersectionality points. Well, I do that every day, so I'm like, (laughs) I always do. I don't need a book to do that. Um, But that was actually a product of the research, and that was mind-blowing for me, that sugar men were known to to protect brides-to-be because everybody knew they were gay. They were like, well, we know you're no threat to my virgin bride because you don't play for that team. And this was something that was known, and now it's something that was, was um, you know, cherished. There were traveling men who, who used to perform outrageous sexual comedy and given a huge leeway because of their entertainment value and also because they were really, really powerful warriors. Um, that gender fluidity, sexual identity, um, all these things, um, even plural pronouns. Africans have been doing that for 4,000 years. I'm glad you all just caught up. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's that, to, to, to recognize all of that, for one, made me feel incredibly valid- validated. But it also reminded me that a lot of these beliefs were prevalent in a lot of these countries, you know, until a bunch of TV preachers came to America and told them no. That the, 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 the origins of homophobia in the continent are actually really recent. And has a lot to do with evangelical Christianity. And I think a lot of these, these countries get a bad rap, certainly from me, but then I went back and read the history. And I went back and listened to the folk tales. And I went back and... As soon as an epic was translated, I was on it. Some were translated into French, so that was hard. <laughs> um, and I was on it. And the the... And I knew I wanted, I knew, I knew, I think then that it was gonna be a trilogy. And I knew it was gonna be a big story. And I knew it would be stories on top of stories. Cause so, I was just learning so much. And, and, and hopefully growing, um, so much. So I wanna open it up. I have no idea what time I should be watching. So I'm gonna open it up to questions. Not comments. <laughs> Here is the deal. If you have a comment, come to the signing. I will, I will listen to all your comments, especially if you bought a book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's open it up. There are two mics here. Um, so you do have to come up and show yourself. Otherwise, I'd have to repeat your question. Yeah, let's move to the, either of the mics. You're first, let's go.
0: Hi. Hi. Um, I'm curious to know what, if anything, is at stake for you when you're deciding what to write next? And I guess I'm wondering that particularly following the success of A Brief History of Seven Killings.
1: Um, mm-hmm. What persuaded me to write this? No, I, oh. I'm
0: curious to know like what's at stake for you, if anything, when you're thinking oh. about what to write next. Like, Are you concerned with the idea mm-hmm. of your body of work? Um, That's a good question. I
1: um, The very quick answer is no. And the reason why I'm not is that usually I, I usually know what I'm, sometimes I, most of the times I know what I'm writing next before um, it gets crazy with the present book. So like I started researching this in early 2015, which was before I won the Booker. And usually when I'm, I'm usually when I'm in a, usually when I'm in a, it, like right now when I'm touring, um, everybody's present tense is this book. My present tense is the next book I'm writing. So I'm usually so caught up with the next book that I don't even really pay attention. So things will hit me off guard. Because um, I think the 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 bigger answer to the to the question is you always have to write the novelist in your head. And I think um, William Burroughs said that there's no such word as should. When it comes to to writing fiction, nonfiction, there, there's no such thing as should. There's you know, write the novel that's in your head should be the novel that comes down on the page. We can edit later, but I see too often, even with the students I teach, I can see the failure of nerve that happened between here and here. And you have to you have to believe in what you're writing. You also have to, I mean, certainly open open yourself to criticism and and and, and direction but you, have to, you really have to have confidence in the story that you're telling. Um, I think too often people think that there's nothing new that they're saying. I say, yeah, but you're the first person to have said it. Um, you know, it's like, yeah, people get married, people fall in love, people fall out of love, but yeah, but nobody's done it, you know, you have done it, nobody has done it for you. So, you know, but, you know bear that in mind. Also, people, there's nothing wrong with a little ego in writing. You know, it's it's yeah. You're you're you know you're here to do a good work. I think. Yeah, I'm gonna go back and forth. Yes. Um,
0: good night. Um, thank you and congratulations for your work. Your thank you. Work. Thank you for
1: getting a Jamaican to come to his first book reading, standing in a line in a race <laughs> as a Woolmarian. Do people German realize this is a big this is a big deal? <laughs> <laughs> and also Ingrid said to tell you, big up. Um, uh-huh. Just a quick question about. Mm. Um, I haven't read book yet, but. In, in today's society, there's a lot of conversation about appropriation, and mm-hmm. you did a lot of work, it seemed, a research, yeah. two years, um, as you said. Are you, have you handled it? You clearly, you must have pre-tested it with, with mm-hmm. folks from the continent and, yeah. and people in the space, just to, to see what kind of reaction you're gonna be getting in terms yeah. of you know, um, approach. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, lot of, lot of things to consider um, with that. Um, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna write a novel based on all the African myths and legends that I know, the first thing I'm gonna come across is all the bad books, um, that did it. Um, the thing about researching this is like, is, is that 90, is like a good 70% of his, of the history books are useless. Um, because I, I, I already know patronizing European attitudes. I grew up in Jamaica. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, but there is a, there, the, there is this weird I think there's a difference because somebody actually asked me you know can can a black person culturally appropriate um can I culturally appropriate Africa and I thought about that and I still think there's a difference between me going into my going into my father's closet and putting on his shoes even though I'm 4 years old and I have no idea what shoes are I think there's still a difference between that and I me mean, going into my neighbor's house and stealing their shoes Um, even if I don't have the slightest idea of my own legacy, I still think I have a right to it. And I think that said, you still, there's still responsibilities. It's, it can be, it can be, um, we can, we can fall in all sorts of ways. And, and, and it's, and it's also cultural appropriation mistakes when you fall into the, I'm just going to be super noble. Or I'm just going to, I'm just going to, and don't realize all you're doing is creating noble savages. So you can fall into that, that. That people people are people are 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 wonderful and they're awful and they're body and they're polite and they smell sometimes good sometimes foul and they do great things and they do horrible things. And to for me it was more than anything else. It should it, the novel should have read us as real people are going through what they're going through. Um, you know, um, I mean that and monsters and <laughs> and so on. I just looked at it as this sort of wild reservoir of of wonderful ideas and legends and stories and histories that um, I felt, you know, I, 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 I was just very honored to, to, you know, go into it and dig deep into it. Um, and yeah, and hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll dig deeper. I haven't been to, I haven't been on the continent since 2013, so I'm very, I'm very excited about going back. And let them give me their opinions. So, you know it's gonna go down in Lagos. <laughs> yes. Hi, my name is Malika. Um, so to follow up on that and your point about research, mm-hmm. have you thought about publishing like a nonfiction edition or like a supplemental like reference guide to point towards
0: some of those source materials that you found? Oh my
1: God, why are you creating work for me?
0: Do you research assistant? I researched well. for two
1: years. <laughs> You know, I actually, it's funny because um, Grey Wolf Press keep approaching me and saying, you know, you should do one of our art books, do the art of research. Because uh, I do i do quite a bit of it. And uh, and I actually like reading, I like, you know, I like going to the original sources. So usually when I come across a text, the first place I go is a bibliography. Because I want to know what they gathered from, especially if I don't agree with their conclusions on the material. Um... And and I have no problem reading the boring stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm, two novels before this, I was reading tax records all day. Don't do that. <laughs> um, I, you know, maybe, but I don't think it's something I do right away. Also, for the simple reason that being a fantasy, I, I still want what John Gardner called the vivid continuous dream. So, and I think the sources are important, and I think where it's drawing from is um is important. But I also think it's something I'd do, certainly not until I've done all three of them. Then I'll do the whole annotated thing and you can all bite twice. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's hey, Marlon. Thanks
0: for uh, spending some time with us tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for
1: coming in the rain.
0: <laughs> not bad at all. Worth the wait. So, <laughs> um, I read this really cool interview with uh, Tochio Miyabuchi mm-hmm. uh, in Electric Lit, and he brought up the topic of horror. Mm-hmm. And you talked a bit about Hellboy, and I was just curious about some maybe the other. Landmark works in the horror genre for
1: you. Mm-hmm. Landmark's in the horror genre. Yeah,
0: for you personally. For me,
1: *Candyman* <laughs> the last movie that ever scared me. Um, I I actually have been liking some of the new wave of horror, and I'm, I'm talking about the films before the books. Um, it follows I thought was fantastic um, because it was one of the few. It was one of the few movies that I get kids right because the kids are making all these decisions to escape these, this demon, and all their decisions are dumb as shit. <laughs> I was like, this is exactly, we're being chased, let's go to the beach. I was like, yeah, this is exactly how. <laughs> I don't want the secret kid who knows the runes, I don't want the nerds who have all the books of witchcraft, except unless it's Buffy. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was great. Um, you know, it's funny, because I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so horror for me meant Poppy Z. Bright. You know, loads and loads of Poppy Z. Bright. Um, I, I'm thinking who, who, who I've been reading re- recently, because a lot of the horror stuff I've been reading has mostly been comics, and, and a lot of it is mostly just gothic. So it's almost things that have chills but are not necessarily horror. Like, um, my favorite novel to teach is um, We've Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Um, it's not horror, but it's dark as hell. <laughs> if you haven't read it, you all need to read it. You'll never forget Mary Cat. That's her name. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I've been mostly with the comics and usually Vertigo, so usually stuff like Hellblazer and Hellboy. Um, I haven't been, as I said, I haven't been that much at who's like who in horror right now. Thought you would know though. <laughs> Thank you. Thank
0: you. Hi. Yes. Hi. Uh, I was just wondering if there's any techniques that you employ when trying to finish books, in particular.
1: Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if my techniques work for people. I when I tell them things like I write in noise. They're like, What do you mean? And uh, or you're gonna say something.
0: I, I I'm kind of struggling trying to write my own book, and I was kind of wondering if there's any a time where you had kind of a similar struggle and then you used a technique mm-hmm. to help you get past that.
1: Yeah, uh, some things, some things that I, I, I don't believe in writer's block. Actually, I kinda do, I just refuse to admit it. <laughs> um, but the, the, the things that, that pulled me out of being stuck reading, reading a lot, um, and reading, and also reading stuff that I wouldn't normally read. So when I said things like uh, Virginia Woolf and Margaret Duras were a huge influence on my last novel, people are like, huh? Your novel know, is about killers in Jamaica, in Kingston. It's like, yeah, but Missus Dalloway rocks. <laughs> it's like, it's, I couldn't have written that book without Missus Dalloway. I think you can. I think you can read your way out of 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 writer's Black. But also believe what Francine DuPlessis Gray says: re- resist the tyranny of genre. So read wait, read far and wide, right and read outside of it. I think. I think there's um, nothing wrong, for example, also, of trying writing in, a, in, a in an author's style. I highly recommended it. You know, I wrote in Cormac McCarthy for a while. It was so bad. It was so bad. I'd have things like, he saw the door, went through the door, and closed the door, and sat down. <laughs> no, not want know if You know, Cormac McCarthy can get away with that shit. <laughs> um, so yeah, reading and um, certainly writing for other authors. I also think it's cool to sit down and not write. I think sometimes the block comes in from thinking you have to, and 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 that pressure um, comes up. Where are you in the writing?
0: I uh, I'm kind of at the editing stage. I'm mm-hmm. 186 pages in, and I'm trying to add details that I've missed. Yeah. And uh, it's
1: interesting you say editing. It sounds like your internal critic is taking over. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you like this creative writing class we're having? <laughs> um, I want to make it quick because we have... Um, the, the, the thing is, you are still in the creating stage of that book. And internal critics are great, but internal critics can't create. So the the, the real thing now is to find out what's a strategy where you can write where you're not over-policing your own work. For me, that I've solved that with one book by writing at five in the morning, because I'm way too delirious to be criticizing anything. <laughs> um, but it, it did work, and I think that's what's happening is you have two very, very necessary impulses that are clashing in a way they shouldn't clash, and that may very well be it, that you're being too unsure of a work that is not even sure of itself yet. And I think that's something. I think sometimes we put third draft pressure on the first draft. Yeah. yeah it's not gonna be Tony Morrison yet. You know, it's it's a first draft is supposed to be terrible. And the second one is slightly less terrible. And 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 once you you, you allow that, then I think it will work. And if it doesn't, you can always blast me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. I thank you. It. Hi. Hi Marlon,
0: thank you for coming. Thanks for
1: coming question about your character Sogolon. Mm-hmm. Was that a reference to the epic of Sanjara? Yes and no, because I know Sanjara. I mean, I know enough that I could sing it myself, because I tell people, hey, I see you reading Lion King. Except then Disney comes after me and goes, no, we didn't read Basit on that. Like, mm-hmm. Any kid in Mali can sing that song to you. Um, it was. Sugalon in, in, in and the epic, the Lion of Mali. The family name is even Simban. That's but but it's not Lion King. Um, and yeah, and she and yeah, she's based on that. She also tells Book Two. A shudder comes over the crowd from those who've read it. That's why I was saying you may have developed some attachment to characters. I would advise you to let go of that. <laughs> but yes, definitely. Um, and there are different, they're different translations of Sanjar, please get the one in verse. The prose one is cool if you're 14, but you get the ones in verse. Thank you. Yes.
0: Uh, I was wondering what your creative environment looks like. like what, what's your workspace like?
1: My workspace is a complete and total mess. You know, so one of my absolute favorite lines ever, ever, ever was in this car- comedy called A Different World. Um, can you tell her old I And and um, and I think it was I can't remember which character. It may have been the Lisa Bonet character. Her desk is just super cluttered, and this the, the 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 busybody comes in and goes, cluttered desk means cluttered mind, and she goes, and what does an empty desk mean? <laughs> And I never forgot because I have, I, my, my, I, I've, I've junk everywhere. My walls are covered in post-its. I have all sorts of plot books I will never consult. I just have to get all that craziness out of my head so I can clear it to write. Um, I also like sort of kind of replicating the world I'm writing and not just a fantasy. Um, when I was writing a book set in slave, slavery period, I had things like even runaway, runaway slave notices on my wall and so on. I think, um, it's not, it's, it, it, it seems like clutter, but it's also committing to the world. Because it's after a while, you're not even so much a writer as if you're kind of a, a journalist for imagined people. So it's very, it seems disorganized to people, which is great, which means they won't come and borrow shit, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's a kind of, a, for me, it's, 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 I need the clutter, and I need the noise, and I write to music, and if there's no music, I open the window so I can hear traffic. Um, cause I grew up in a noisy house. I grew up in a Caribbean household. Nobody's gonna shut up so I can do my term paper. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, um, I think the more things you have around you that can spark ideas, I think the better off you are. Bear in mind, I have friends who write in almost a sensory deprivation tank and it works with them. Maybe not a tank, but they have, they, they face a black wall and it works for them. But yeah, it's, it's very jumbled cause, Everything is jumbled in my head, so. Oh, yeah, thank you. Sure. Yes.
0: Marlon, this is going to be our last question. Just okay.
1: You better meet this cone. What's up, Marlon? Thank you so much again for all your hard work. Everybody appreciates you. Thank you. Um, for sure. Uh, one question. I know most people didn't really talk about the book, ask questions about the book too much. Mm-hmm. Maybe this question could segue into like you given a little bit more about the world Mm -hmm. but there's like seems to be a a very interesting link between belief or discussion of belief Mm -hmm. even in the quotes that you mentioned um today you know as your introduction you talked about you know you don't believe the narrator too much in traditional Mm -hmm. folklore um and then you know in the quote about the princess Mm -hmm. you know she talks about belief and you know believing the situation Mm -hmm. um being royalty and stuff like that yeah i mean then tracker always talks about you know um you know, he doesn't believe in belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just wondering, like, is that a part of the culture that's inhabited in the work, or mm-hmm. is that a part of, like, you know, your ideas of traditional,
0: um, mm-hmm. you
1: know, African folklore that, you know, yeah. brought this forth, or what is your... There are actually three answers to that. See, I'm doing a whole... There are three endings to this story. There there are three answers to that. One is, a lot of it is Tracker's belief, because is telling the story. And he's definitely somebody who is... Um, jaded for lots of reasons including all the systems for which we we have faith in family and so on he he does not have spoiler sorry he 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 doesn't have and and there is that there is also you know it's a world where there is the presence of so many spiritual and and fantastical creatures but so many characters who don't even believe in them and and that's and 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 i wanted that contrast and the third thing i will say which is kind of a teaser there's a reason why there's a belief crisis in the book, but you're going to have to read a second book. <laughs> but it, it was definitely deliberate. Thank you. And I think this is where <clears throat> Thank you guys for coming you grab this
0: Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of the bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.